Welcome to Searching for the Question Live. Uh, my name is David Orban, and I am very glad to have uh, all of you here at the show. Uh, we are streaming live to Facebook, YouTube, and uh, Twitter. And you are very welcome to ask uh, questions, make comments. It is the beauty of being live. We have the ability uh, to read what you write and uh, give you feedback, just as you are giving feedback to us. In you can also join uh, our uh, Discord community uh, where we continue the uh, discussions around the themes that uh, we address uh, live on the show at uh, davidorban.com slash Discord. And uh, if uh, you uh, like uh, what uh, you are seeing, if you believe that uh, there is value uh, in uh, what uh, I am creating together uh, with my team, uh, you are very welcome uh, to become a fan, a supporter, uh, a sponsor, or a benefactor on uh, Patreon at patreon.com slash David Orban. Today's guest is uh, Francesco Mosconi. Francesco Mosconi, for those who speak uh, Italian. And um, Francesco and I have known each other for um, almost uh, 10 years, uh, I think, uh, because uh, I met him uh, at uh, Singularity University, where he was a student of mine. And as it happens with uh, many, uh, after having his uh, brain rewired by the experience, and um, even though he loves uh, Italy and especially his uh, region uh, in the north uh, uh, near the mountains, uh, he decided to stay uh, in the Bay Area. And we kept in touch. So uh, since uh, the things that Francesco is doing uh, uh, these days are very interesting, uh, I invited him to be a guest and uh, very kindly he uh, accepted so, uh, Francesco, welcome to Searching for the Question uh, Live. Thank you very much for having me here today. So let's start with uh, with that. Uh, uh, am I right uh, that uh, you would love to be back in Italy, but uh, it's just not possible? The, the kind of intellectual stimulation that you received, uh, the opportunities that you have, uh, in the Bay Area, are, are are not the same that you would uh, you would experience in uh, in back at home. Is that right? I, I think it was more right in the past. Uh, okay. Definitely, when I moved here nine years ago, there was a big gap in uh, what I could experience here in terms of access to knowledge and people and opportunities and capital, and what I could experience in Italy. Um, I think it's less true now. Um, there is a number of factors that are contributing to it. I think uh, most recently COVID-19 made all us uh, virtual and, and mobile. And as a matter of fact, there's, there's a lot of people leaving San Francisco and leaving the Bay Area because now they can work from anywhere. And so, you know, maybe I'll come back at some point. So let's, uh, let's look at this. I always like the, to show... Uh, the last guest uh, we had, uh, Michelle Bowens, um, was connected from Chiang Mai uh, in, uh, in Thailand, a uh, beautiful place. I have never been, but my son Cosimo likes it. He was, 
he was there uh, when when we could travel and uh, you are in uh, beautiful san francisco or thereabouts which yeah. is right uh, across uh, from from the ocean are you actually in san francisco or i am or... in san francisco i'm still okay. in san francisco one of the few <laughs> and 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 yes what you said about uh, the um the 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 uh, remote work and how uh, large corporations are adopting it i think is uh, is very important google um confirmed just a few weeks ago that they didn't need they won't need to have people back in the office for at least another year yeah and what they are not saying is that there is no um going back from there because yes. if you are a senior engineer at google and you are paid whatever you are paid two three four hundred thousand dollars and you say you know what i will move with my family and I will go to Oregon or, or wherever, because the only thing I need is a high-speed fiber optic connection, and I radically reduce the cost of life. Maybe I improve the quality of life. Maybe I won't have to commute one, two hours per day uh, to go to the office uh, in Mountain View. Well, when Google a year from now is going to say, hey, everybody, you can come back, those engineers say no thanks i'm not coming back and 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 not only yeah, google will I not completely agree it's them. it's not going it's not going to come back That's it's not right. going it's not going to come back on on the positive side what google and everyone else uh from a recruiter point of view is going to realize is that previously they were concentrating on a extremely an artificially restricted pool of talent, the people who were already there in the Bay Area or who were available Willing to move. And, and they will get a taste for the beauty of a wider pool of talent anywhere in the world. And they will say, wow, this is actually pretty cool. So they will not want to go back either. Yeah. And, uh, and it is going to be very interesting. So yeah, yeah, that is going to be Completely a really agree. It's uh I, I think it's a transition that will change uh things forever. It's not gonna go back to you know offices and uh big big skyscrapers full of people. Yeah, what what we will have to start understanding is digital serendipity. Because a lot of uh, the benefit of uh mingling, whether it is a cocktail party or a dinner with a few friends, half of them you don't know, is uh, to discover unexpectedly valuable connections. And of course, uh, you know, every taxi driver in New York or waitress is an actor. Every taxi driver in uh, Los Angeles is a script writer or wannabe movie director. Yeah. And everyone whatever they do in san francisco is a start upper is yeah. a is a potential ceo or actual ceo of a startup and and uh, meeting physically used to be important 
So do you have any idea of what will substitute uh, the uh, physical serendipity? What will constitute digital serendipity? Uh, I think there is two trends that are starting to, you know, come uh, out very clearly. Uh, the Maybe the most innovative is all the experimentation around digital platforms that allow you to do that. Now, there are many of them that try to extend the concept of video conferencing that we have in Zoom and Skype and whatever in ways that allows for more serendipity or interaction in an office-like space or in a conference-like space. Uh, that's a trend that's going to continue for sure. I don't think there is one platform that has nailed the user experience yet, but there is um, a number of um, um, experiments in that arena. Uh, I think um, there is another trend, which is platforms that um, create serendipitous connections based on interests. Um, I've been invited to one such platform where you can sign up every week for a number of video calls with completely random strangers. Do you uh, remember the, the URL or the name of the platform? Uh, I think it's called Lunch Club. Um, oh, okay. And, uh, uh, and you just decide how many calls you want to have in a week and uh, specify what your goals are and what your interests are. And, uh, and you, um, exactly. And you get uh, matched and you get to talk to people. So that's, uh, that's another trend. There is another platform that uh, I've uh, used uh, consistently. It's called Rally, uh, R-A-L-L-Y. And that's, uh, that's more for like conference-like serendipitous encounters uh, at events, uh, digital events. Um, um, <clears throat> uh, uh, it's with a Y, uh, Rally. Well, yeah. the cards came out. Um, I'll, I'll find the link and send it so you can share it uh, later on. Uh, I don't think that's the, the one. If you want, I can look for it. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. Um, oh, it's go.rally.video. Rally.video. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I love experimenting with these platforms, uh, so I'm always happy to have uh, new ones uh, pointed out to me. As a matter of fact, I started uh, my live shows using Zoom, and uh, a friend of mine uh, from Pakistan uh, is a big fan of StreamYard, the, the platform we are using right now. And uh, so I just experimented with it. I liked it and adopted it. So I'm always yeah. looking... Uh, for the next uh, thing to test. Thank you for uh, pointing out Rally and, and Lunch Club. Uh, I will try both. Absolutely. So, uh, tell me about uh, your trajectory. Uh, um, where did you start? What did you study? How did you discover Singularity University and decided to go there? And then, and then what did you do after that uh, uh, over the course of the past years? Uh, happy to tell you that. I just wanted to point out one more trend that I think it's going to stay through your previous question, which sure. is I think uh, events will stay. People will stop gathering in cities, but you know, events will live events will become more and more prevalent. So as soon as we I will you know, be very happy to uh, go there in a plastic bubble. No, I think or, I think we'll uh, I think we'll get COVID sorted. It will take some time, but 
Uh, well, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so vaccine or, or real-time testing or, you know, whatever it is going to be. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so your question was, uh, how did this all whole thing start? I, I, I don't know if you know it. Uh, maybe I've never told you, but it's actually uh, thanks to you or because of you that I discovered uh, the, the existence of Singularity University. I, I remember you calling me and asking me whether you should go and what uh, what I actually recommended between that and and the other choice yes. you were contemplating at the time. But I didn't remember that you found it because of me. So you, you gave uh, you gave a brief talk, and I'm talking of uh, it was probably like late 2010 or early 2011. You gave a brief talk and an event organized in Milan by Mind the Bridge. Um, and I was in the audience and you were talking about this place in Silicon Valley called Singularity University. And I was like, that really sounds like a place I'd like to go to. And so then after I called you and asked you some uh, information about it, uh, ended up attending the summer program in 2011. And that started a journey that was, uh, has not finished yet. Uh, and it's uh, you know, still going. But, but as a matter of fact, uh, uh, what you are doing now, data science, was already something that, uh, that you were passionate about. Yeah, the, the alternative of uh, that summer, we uh, had also been offered a position at uh, Facebook for uh, data science. It was not called data science yet. It was, uh, they were looking for like math and physics majors uh, doing data analysis. Um, in hindsight, I'd probably be rich if I had accepted that position right now. <laughs> but you know, there is always opportunities you miss along along the road, and, and SU was an amazing opportunity for many what other is, reasons. What so. is money anyway? <laughs> exactly. So you know, all good. It opened up to so many possibilities that I'm very happy I took I took the opportunity to come. Um, and um, tell us whether you like the expression data science or not for me just to just to tell you mm -hmm. just like um, computer science it is aspirational but science has a fairly precise definition and neither computer science nor data science actually fits the definition of of uh, the interaction between experiments and theory and and opening the doors to uh, previously unknown facets uh, of the world. Uh, so in that sense, I, I don't like the expression. Um, I'm not so strongly opinionated on it. I think uh, what the one of the misunderstandings is that companies use the term data scientist to indicate anything and everything and any job role that has to do somehow with data. And one particular job role, which is the product data scientist, actually is somewhat of a scientist because your primary goal is to run, your primary task is to run experiments like a scientist would do. And from those experiments, extract insights to inform the product roadmap or decisions that the, the executives may take. But you will find roles uh, that are called data scientists that are more like data analytics or machine learning engineer or uh, software engineer with some data sprinkled in it. So uh, yeah, I think it's, it's more as this, this Venn diagram looks uh, fairly good. 
yeah. uh, at the intersection of math and statistics, computer science and information technology, uh, knowledge uh, management, or business and the domain, or business analytics, business domain, uh, and and um, appropriately it uh, fills in other slices as well. But the intersection of the three is what this defines uh, data science. All right. Yeah. Okay. And and so what about the relative confusion or overlap, whether intended or um, you know just uh, uh, due to to ignorance between artificial intelligence and data science? Uh, a lot, <laughs> lot of a lot of data scientists look uh, at AI condescendingly. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, that is just data science. That is just statistics. Yeah, yeah. So there is an ongoing debate, and that's because... Uh... AI okay. is a brand that can make... Yep. You are back. Go ahead. Yes. I'm saying AI is a brand that uh, can make a, a company more valuable just because you say we uh, we have AI. And so everybody wants to claim they're doing artificial intelligence one way or another. Uh, to, be, to be specific, I think the relationship is machine learning, which is uh, one particular way of uh, doing uh, inference from data, is a branch of artificial intelligence. So if you picture AI as a big family, there is one part of it, which is machine learning. And inside that, there is one small part, which is deep learning, which is one particular technique. And what happens is that some of the results that were obtained in this particular field recently ended up being quite astonishing and, and promising. And so people started to identify deep learning with all of AI when it's, uh, it's not. And data science, as you're showing, overlaps with these, but it's not just that. And I think the main, the main, main um, difference is uh, data scientists are often asked to provide insights for decision, whereas AI, machine learning, and deep learning, they primarily focus on automating such decisions with models. So it's really two different takes. In one case, you're looking at data, trying to understand it and come with policies that are data informed, that's data science. In machine learning, deep learning, AI, call it what you, what you want, you're trying to automate uh, one particular task or, uh, or more. We have uh, Al uh, Fischler saying hello. Hey Fish, good to see you. And uh, and uh, Emiliano um, commenting positively on uh, my new <laughs> setup uh, because he's a fan of uh, of the show, so he is always very alert about uh, whether I am improving, and he's always pushing me to to improve. Um, so after uh, finishing Singularity University, um, a lot of people. Uh, feel like uh, aliens who have landed from Mars and they have a hard time relating uh, to other humans. Uh, what uh, what did you do? Uh, did you uh, find uh, 
a quotation marks job. Uh, how how did you go about your things at the time? Yeah, so uh, for the for about one year, I I came back to Europe and uh, did a few uh, jobs as a consultant uh, in the innovation uh, implementation of innovation space. I worked both for startups and for large companies, uh, both in Italy and in other countries. Um, but really, I I had been inspired by Silicon Valley, and I wanted to come back. So. After one year in Europe, I decided to come back here and I did it quite recklessly. I didn't really plan it. I did literally one day decided, okay, we should go back to the United States. And, um, and uh, I didn't have a visa. I didn't have a job offer. I, didn't, I had nothing. So uh, I you know, had to figure it out. Um, eventually, a startup that was uh, at, the, at the moment just two guys in a garage, literally, like uh, all startups here. Um, they were looking for a data person and I was looking for a startup. Uh, we ended up um, joining forces. I joined- Do you, do you remember how you met them? Yes, absolutely. The, one of the two founders was introduced uh, by a friend uh, who was also uh, incubated in StarTex, which is the Stanford uh, Startup Accelerator. Um, and so, you know, completely serendipitous. The, I want to uh, do a shout out here uh, to Terun Pizza in Palo Alto because I was eating a pizza there, met this Italian friend who I'd never, uh, I hadn't seen for a while. His name is Adriano Farano and he's now in Paris. Uh, we had met in Paris. Uh, he was doing a startup, uh, we catch up and he, and I told him like, I'm here, you know, looking to meet interesting people. And he introduced me to maybe, uh, you know, 10 people. And one of them turned out to be my future co-founders uh, of uh, Spire. Well, uh, let's hope that uh, Terum Pizza can uh, open uh, soon because yeah. for the moment they are, they are closed. Um, and and yeah, that is wonderful. That is the kind of serendipity that we mentioned a few minutes ago. And what did this uh, startup do? So Spire uh, is uh, still alive, and it's a company that produced uh, the first wearable device that can track uh, respiration in real time. Uh, we uh, invented it, uh, patented it, uh, produced it, uh, mass produced it, and uh, sold it. Um, it's, um, it's a small gadget you put on your belt and it tracks your uh, breathing frequency as well as your steps and your calories. And uh, that uh, at that time was uh, the beginning of uh, wearables and it was a very interesting space. Spire has evolved since uh, then and now it's uh, fully focused on medical uh, grade respiration monitoring. Um, it's uh, it's been a very interesting journey uh, to so be. So it started uh, consumer and then went to medical. Yes, it started consumer and then went to medical. Of what sometimes happens because producing a consumer device and then getting to an Apple store, which I think Spire. Yeah, we did. We were one of the first hardware uh, wearables in the Apple store. Yeah, that is very hard and very expensive. Also navigating the regulatory space uh, so that you can provide information to the consumer, but you don't end up being censored by uh, the FDA. Yeah. That is very hard. Yeah. 
and 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 so Spire decided uh, to instead go uh, and and uh, pivot towards the um, uh, the health, uh, the professional health. Um, yeah. Okay. And there's good reasons why we did that. Uh, at the time, uh, respiration monitoring uh, uh, in consumer space was a non-existent. Nobody had uh, any sensor that remotely looked like ours. Uh, the, all the sensors were uh, step counters like Fitbit and, and similar. Um, and uh, we were not entirely sure of the market and we were not entirely sure of the technology either. So we needed to have fast experimentation on all sides. We needed to experiment fast on the product, on the messaging, on the type of customer. So we're doing what technically is called looking for product market fit. And being in a consumer space allowed us to iterate faster than uh, being in medical space, where you know the regulatory slows you down at that at that time. Once the technology was uh, you know nailed, and um, and uh, you know validated, then uh, we raised more money to go medical. If I'm not mistaken, uh, you were part of the team, or you were the team that went to China to manage the production process and prototyping first and then larger productions later. Uh, do I remember well or, or I'm mistaken? I, I missed you for a second. Can you repeat the question? Did you go to China to oversee the production process? Yeah, yeah. I spent Tell me three... about that experience. Oh. <laughs> it was my first time in China. Uh, so I spent three weeks uh, there. We, we also had a software development team in Beijing. So uh, the trip to China was motivated both by overseeing production and by the uh, you know interaction with the software engineering team. Um, super interesting. Uh, we I spent uh, I think two weeks in Dongguan, which is a city in the south where we were producing uh, the the wearable, and then two more weeks in um, in Beijing with uh, my software engineering team. Very different world. I was very fascinated by Beijing. It uh, struck me as very vibrant and uh, um, very alive. Dongguang was, uh, you know, I was either in the factory or in the hotel. I didn't really see the city, so I can't really comment. Why, why, not, uh, why not Shenzhen? Dongguang is near Shenzhen, and uh, we, uh, we had found a good partner to produce the wearable there, so. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, there are many stories of uh, the ups and downs and adventures and uh, miscommunication and you open the box and the thing is really not what you expect. Uh, so it is, uh, it is interesting when a, when a U.S. Uh, company uh, achieves uh, their, uh, their goal of, uh, of actually being able to produce in China. Yeah, I think in our case, we were quite well positioned for that. Both the original founders had lived in China and had met in China. And we had uh, five people in the, in the software development team in China. So we had, uh, you know, a decent understanding of communication and of expectations that allowed and us. And what did you do uh, after Aspire? Okay, so after Spire, I uh, had a transition moment, uh, as always happens when you come out of a very intense project. And then uh, I started a project called Data Weekends, 
which uh, was uh, data science weekends, basically training courses uh, in the weekend uh, where you can attend, um, you know, uh, and still keep your job during the rest of the week. Um, and and uh, those those courses were towards uh, what kind of uh, audience? Uh, what kind of people uh, frequented the courses? Yeah, so those courses were primarily designed for software engineers who uh, were we're talking about. This is the year twenty fifteen, beginning of twenty sixteen. So uh, people wanted to uh, really understand what machine learning was, and uh, in here in the area locally and uh, see if they could find a job in one of the big companies. And so having that experience, I uh, set up a, uh, you know, a minimum viable course that you could take over a weekend and understand what the, all the fuss was about. At the same time, I set up a consulting shop uh, that allowed me to you know, um, intercept some interesting projects. And then the two evolved into what I'm doing now. Let's jump to that. So uh, it is not easy to not easy to know what it is gonna be because uh, <laughs> it is still kind of a stealth mode. Zero to deep learning is going online. Tons yeah. of video content, live online masterclasses, office hours, the ZDTL book, and more. Yep. So zero to deep learning has been uh, the natural evolution of Data Weekends in that it was a five-day bootcamp that we have run here in San Francisco and across the United States at multiple uh, locations with companies um, in the last two years. And uh, that material has been uh, reconfigured into an online course that we will uh, very soon open for uh, the public that, um, yeah, we are running a sweepstakes right now. Uh, cloud compute is one of the things that we've uh, repeatedly heard from our students that they would like to have access to. So we are offering $1,000 of cloud compute credits uh, to anyone who uh, you know, participates in the, in the sweepstakes. Um, you, mean, you mean on top of the... Uh, first, those is free drug that Amazon and Google and, and IBM and Microsoft, all of them give you. Yeah. Exactly. Because it is so addictive yeah. that rather than lasting yeah. for months, in we, the of a week, you run out. Yep. Okay. Now... Uh, what is uh, uh, what is the the, the model uh, you are talking about uh, uh, live Q and A uh, and um, office hours master classes? So um, this is not going to be inexpensive. Uh, there, there will be different tiers with different level of access. I cannot. I don't want to divulge the the exact details, but there will be accessible tiers with recorded material. Uh, for everyone to follow. And there will be uh, higher tiers where you have a live component and uh, potentially help in your career and other things that we are still you know, honing the details of. Uh, it's uh, funny because um, I am uh, actually in the process of uh, doing something similar uh, in a different uh, uh, camp uh, uh, rather than 
specifically for one technology across uh, several several uh, technologies. Uh, I last year uh, published um, a, a paradigm that I call of jolting technologies, especially AI, where the uh, rate of acceleration is increasing. That's why you are talking about the jolt, which is the first derivative of acceleration in mathematics. And there are other technologies as well where the merely exponential paradigm that we study and, and teach at Singularity University is not enough anymore. Uh, and uh, I am also trying to make sure that the people who experience uh, this uh, course uh, can uh, do so uh, complementing the recorded material with uh, uh, live online interaction where the real value is, where they can ask uh, questions and we uh, brainstorm together and we pull up the various uh, websites like uh, I am doing uh, right now in, in, in real time. Yes. So uh, uh, this is kind of a convergent evolution in your offering and and in the offering that I am uh, also also designing and developing, very very good. I think you know one thing we're trying to be careful of is that in the last months at least people are in this uh, Zoom overload where everything is is uh, live conferences, and so uh, we, we are experimenting with small groups of people what kind of uh, things are the most interesting. Um, we definitely don't want to come across as, uh, you know, just another, you know, video conference. I think uh, one advantage of uh, what you are offering is that uh, it is very hands-on. You yes. can have people uh, doing exercises, uh, showing their progress. They can invite you in the project, uh, in the cloud, and you can show them uh, a better way of doing things based on your experience. Yes. So it can be extremely um you know uh, satisfying to to see that what you learn is immediately applied yes yes absolutely and then uh you know all our code is uh, open source uh we use github for uh for it so definitely the interaction uh is uh, easy and uh, you know road tested and i hope people will like it and um it how do you see the evolution of the of the platforms? There is always a, a constant leapfrogging. Uh, Amazon uh, took everyone by surprise, uh, becoming a, an important player in in uh, in, in cloud computing. Uh, Google has a more integrated approach, uh, where the layers of abstraction are shorter, yeah. uh, and the uh, developer tools uh, touch, not the metal. Uh, because it's turtles all the way down and we don't see metal uh, even with a telescope anymore. But uh, uh, how do you see the evolution of the tools for cloud computing specifically for your type of uh, applications uh, in, in data science? So it's, it's a fierce battle uh, at multiple levels, right? Uh, there is a battle of frameworks uh, that's one, and I can talk about that more in detail. Uh, there is the battle of tools and cloud compute offering, and I agree with you. Um, Amazon has uh, kind of uh, come back 
to uh, the AI, even the AI um, offering. It used to be Amazon is uh, big in cloud compute, but uh, for AI, Google was uh, was kind of prominent. And uh, in the recent uh, release of uh, AWS machine learning tools, there is so many uh, APIs for machine learning that uh, definitely Amazon has um, has a chance to to play in that in that um, ballpark in that field. Um, I think Azure uh, is also an important player to remember uh, from Microsoft. Um, they have a wide offering for machine learning, and with their recent partnering with uh, OpenAI, they are at the forefront of uh, what's been done in machine learning. And uh, what about the frameworks? Yeah, so frameworks. Uh, if you go back in time, let's say, um, four or five years, uh, there was an interesting uh, uh, attempt by all companies. You, you notice that more or less within the span of a year, uh, all major tech companies, they open sourced their frameworks. Uh, you, you had Amazon who open sourced theirs, uh, Google open sourced theirs, Microsoft open sourced theirs, uh, Facebook, their framework open source. Um, so you had projects such as TensorFlow, MXNet, PyTorch, um, and, and so on. Uh, this battle of frameworks that you can see here, uh, in my opinion, is uh, over now. There is only two contestants standing, and one is TensorFlow and the other is PyTorch. And PyTorch is winning in uh, the research arena, and TensorFlow is winning in the enterprise arena. Um, and uh, what about uh, the uh, uh, containerization uh, in terms of deployability of the mm -hmm. applications, uh, uh, Kubernetes and, and, and the others? Yes, uh, it's a very clear trend and it's going to continue. Uh, most machine learning models nowadays, uh, regardless of how they are implemented, they're hosted on a containerized platform like such as Kubernetes. One, one trend that is very clear now is uh, the um, trend of frameworks that allow you to manage both the infrastructure and the training and the deployment in as code. So these are uh, projects such as MLflow or Metaflow, uh, they are scripting languages that allow you to tie together different parts of the data science pipeline, of the machine learning pipeline. So you manage the whole life cycle. Another one is called TFX, which is the one that's uh, from TensorFlow. So if you look for TensorFlow TFX, exactly TensorFlow extended. Um, these are, they all uh, solve the same problem. They basically, make the pipeline scriptable and reproducible. So this is the foundation of, uh, of uh, platforms and tools and, and management systems of, that, that allow to, to tie together the features of the various tools. Let's talk a little bit about applications. So the, the, the classical AI examples of image recognition, voice uh, uh, or speech recognition, and, and others. 
uh, now the astonishing results of uh, GPT-3. Yeah. Uh, and I would love to hear your uh, experience or, or your opinion uh, about it as well, as well as GPT-4 or 5, you know. Um, I, I, what other applications would you mention? Uh, maybe less, um, uh, you know, picturesque, but uh, in a business environment, extremely valuable that uh, your clients or students go on uh, implementing. Yeah, I think the big the big one that people look for is uh, fraud and anomaly detection. So that's that's a very common application of. Uh, machine learning in business uh, for any company that's dealing with uh, interactions from the outside world they need the layer of uh, of um, protection sometimes they buy it from a company sometimes they implement it uh, themselves um, we worked with some very large clients on that so um definitely companies are uh, implementing uh, things that uh, are related to image recognition in uh, of the network. So now you have uh, these models that are pretty good at recognizing uh, objects and they're made uh, so light and uh, small that you can deploy them on a small uh, chipset on an on a edge device. For example, recently, uh, one of the state-of-the-art uh, models for image recognition is called YOLO version 4, uh, and uh, it's uh, Y-O-L-O, um, yep, Y-O-L-O, uh, and that's a very, very, very small, um, so yeah, YOLO v4, correct, version 4. Uh, is uh, is a model that's made for uh, real-time object recognition in embedded devices. And so, you know, you have tons of different applications that go from self-driving to, you know, recognition of situations uh, in several environments, you know, tracking. It also opens up to, you know, kind of worms in the security space of like, you know, big or brotherish, big brotherish surveillance. So, yeah. you know, there's that too. Um, now let's let's go back to to GPT three uh, and and mm -hmm. for those of us uh, watching, um, uh, machine learning is based uh, on the ability to recognize patterns in large amounts of data, and there has been a challenge in uh, uh, making these models able to stick to the context of what they were looking at. They were too easily distracted and they would forget what they were talking about. Uh, and uh, a few years ago, a new approach called Transformer uh, was able to uh, attack the problem from a different angle, achieving a longer attention span for these pattern recognition models that could be then applied specifically, and there can be other applications as well, to uh, predicting what the next word could be in a text. And as the machine was looking at the text, it would go, oh, okay, 
I think that the next word in this sentence could be, and then the, the, the word was put there by the machine. And, and the larger the volume of, of text that would be analyzed in order to train the predictive model, the better it would be, but nobody knew, and still nobody really knows, whether there is a, a, a threshold of volume of data in the training above which uh, the ability of this text generation approach starts to decline, relatively speaking. So it is not worth increasing uh, the uh, training data tenfold because you only get a 1% improvement. And GPT-2 uh, published a couple of years ago uh, in open source format progressively by the OpenAI Foundation um, has been very good, trained on uh, a volume of data to uh, then be formalized in 1.5 billion parameters that were set uh, through training. And just a few months ago, uh, the new version GPT-4 has been released. GPT-3. Yeah, I wish. GPT-3 has been released, which uh, is uh, based on a much larger corpus of data, and it trains uh, the settings of uh, 170 billion parameters. And the results surprised you may confirm whether this is the case, even the experts who kind of expected for the benefit to start plateauing. But the examples that we see of GPT-3 uh, being used interactively rather than in an open source version that you can download and run yourself uh, through an API, uh, these are just incredible examples. So. What is your opinion of GPT-3? Have you had the chance of playing with it yourself? And then let's let's uh, think about more things around it. Yeah, I, I, I'll start from saying that uh, you're right. In the last couple of years, the, the, uh, the focus has been on these uh, language models that have improved in performance and uh, being trained in in the very same way you're always trying to predict the next word and uh by just increasing the model size and increasing the amount of data um uh yes i have had uh the opportunity to play with gpt3 uh for some uh in some aspects is impressive uh in that it can generate uh text that looks very much like the text uh a person would uh, write. Um, it's also impressive in the way it fails because it's very clear it does not understand what it's talking about. And so I'm afraid that the biggest use of GPT-3 right now is producing human-like text that could be used for like product reviews or for fake news or things like that. Um, Q&A is an interesting space for GPT-3 because it's, it has enough knowledge of the world that it can, if trained, if prompted with the Q&A pattern, 
is able to uh, follow that pattern and so reply to trivia. And so, for example, it could serve as an assistant to a student that asks questions about you know, known facts, like, for example, what's the capital of uh, France or who discovered uh, the United States uh, in, uh, 1492 and, and so on. So for those kind of uh, applications, I think GPT-3 is um, definitely ready. And um, and, uh, and um, uh, the example that uh, implements this approach uh, is uh, learn from anyone, uh, which um, uh, pretends to be able or expects to be able uh, to impersonate a philosopher or a scientist or uh, a poet, and then you interact with that fictional person to go deep in the subject that they are expert about in their own style and uh, the enthusiasm around uh, this kind of approach is uh, is pretty high yeah absolutely and and we are exploring that too i think it's a very promising it's a very promising uh tool for the world of education for example so, so you are not afraid of uh, being replaced by a robot uh, data science instructor i wish you know i want to be replaced by a robot data scientist <laughs> as long as you own the robot uh, that that's a very interesting question and we could go into that uh you know uh, i'm happy to explore that i think the the important thing is as long as I can make some uh, uh, living off of uh, the robot. And, and so, you know, if I own the robot is one option, but also if I don't own the robot, but the robot pays some taxes and I get a dividend of the automation, I'm, I would be fine with that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, people talk about uh, universal basic income, yes. uh, but... Uh, I like to talk about universal basic wealth because uh, we think of um, uh, the economy as accruing a lot of uh, wealth to the wealthy and uh, accruing disproportionately less to the less wealthy. And, and that uh, increases uh, wealth inequality. Yes. And, uh, and um, th this kind of vision that that i i promote takes into account also um, sources of wealth and well-being that are typically ignored like uh, the ecological support systems that we all take advantage of you can breathe air you can drink water you have gravity uh, you have uh, sunshine uh, those are things that uh, that we tend to take for granted and, and, and we kind of shouldn't. So as our societies become more and more automated or automatable, uh, we can think of um, not only ecological, but economic support systems that become available to, to everyone. And, and that is why uh, talking about yeah, absolutely. the footprint of uh, AI and embedded AI uh, that can be in any device, not only available in very expensive billion-dollar data centers, uh, is quite important because that is the trend towards the democratization of the tools uh, that uh, and then become the source of a more widespread uh, wealth uh, creation. 
Yeah, things could go very right or very wrong. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the forces that we're dealing with are definitely powerful. And so uh, there is, a, you know, an important degree of responsibility. And, and the AI world, uh, for that matter, has been uh, quite concerned with, uh, with some aspects of, you know, this technology, which is really powerful. Uh, I uh, participated uh, in uh, the um, uh, conference uh, originally organized by Elon Musk uh, uh, and uh, now from by the uh, institute that he uh, financed, uh, the Future of Life Institute at MIT in yeah. Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico. It's uh, any, and every couple of years. Uh, it's an invitation-only uh, meeting uh, uh, whose uh, subject is um agi safety and security yeah so not talking about the mere mistakes uh, that current narrow ai applications can make uh, in uh, denying loans or or misclassifying students uh, or being racist but uh, huge existential threats uh, potentially represented by uh, advanced ai or AI that is able to advance on its own, uh, which is uh, one of the holy grails of uh, a lot of uh, research. I think you know there is that's a concern, and it's it's great that uh, researchers are thinking of it. Um, the shorter term impacts of uh, automation technology on society are are the things that worry me uh, the most in this at this at this time. Um, because, uh, as you said, you know, I, I could be put out of job by an algorithm, and so could many other people. And and you know, people without jobs become angry and and hungry, and you don't want that. Um, so, is it your expectation that GPT four will convince you that it understands what it is talking about? So. Um, Maybe not GPT-4, could be GPT-N, where N is a small number, you know, five, six, or, or seven. Um, there is an argument for why that should be the case uh, that I've uh, recently uh, also read, um, that if a model is trained in predicting the next word, okay, um, at some point, it... Uh, the only way it has to improve its ability to predict the word is to form an intuition about what the words are actually talking about. So as you increase the amount of data and you increase the model size, the model will uh, for sure approximate what we uh, uh, deem to be understanding. Um, I think the question I have is how is the model able to extrapolate or ima imagine alternate possibilities like um is the model able to reason outside of the world that it has been trained on and that's that's something that i'm not sure uh, gptn is going to be able to do or if it is the the way to find out is going to be to ask the model in natural uh, language can you imagine a situation where this happens and the model will you know reply to that yeah, uh, it is. It is wonderful to be able to start asking those questions that uh, uh, were absolutely hypothetical 
20, 30, 40, 50 years Even ago. Even five years ago, to be honest. <laughs> it, is, it is quite amazing. That is why I'm talking about jolting uh, technologies and jolting times. Uh, you know, Ray Kurzweil uh, revised uh, his numbers. Uh, originally, the symbolic year uh, for when human level uh, AI could be bought for $1,000 was 2045. And, and now he says 2038. And maybe yeah. next year he's going to say 2025. And then boom, we are there. So yeah. um, we'll see. We'll see. So, um, uh, Francesco, uh, good luck uh, with the launch of uh, uh, Zero uh, to Deep Learning. Thank you uh, very much. And um, anybody uh, who signs up uh, has the chance of uh, winning $1,000 of uh, cloud compute uh, uh, resources. And you can multiply your chances manifold by having um, potentially hundreds of entries rather than just one in the sweepstakes. If you follow uh, Twitter, uh, if you uh, share on Twitter, if you, um, what do you, what, what is your thought? You can, you can watch our YouTube videos, check the documentation of some frameworks, uh, refer some friends, visit our website. There's a number of actions you can take. It, it, it is incentivizing attention, dedication, and a lot of good behavior that uh, starts you on a path of learning by itself. Yeah, and so, it's uh, hopefully providing value in the contest as well. I mean, by visiting the documentation of a framework, you start to learn already. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, Francesco, uh, good luck again, and uh, thank you very much for uh, being uh, a guest on Searching for the Question Live. Thank you, David, for having me. Have a great day. Thank you, everybody, for uh, being uh, together with us today on uh, Searching for the Question Live. Um, if uh, you uh, speak Italian uh, and uh, you like uh, this uh, kind of conversations, you can also subscribe to my Italian YouTube channel on davidorban.com slash YouTube Italiano. Just go there. It will switch you over to YouTube. Hit uh, the subscribe button and then you will get not only the Italian show, uh, but the English uh, show and so on. And uh, uh, you can also uh, uh, suggest uh, guests and vote on guests uh, that you would like to see on Searching for the Question Live. So there are many ways to, to participate, as well as uh, if you like the content to become uh, a fan, a supporter, um, a sponsor, or a benefactor on Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash David Orban. Uh, thank you again and see you at uh, the next episode of uh, Searching for the Question Live.